to get it off the ground, we needed to work crazy hours, like 100 hours a week, 120 hours a week. I remember my friends from business school would be getting together to go out for happy hour after work. You know, it was hard because I thought, wow, that they're at their great job at Goldman Sachs or, or wherever. I felt like we were missing something, but I also felt like we're, we're going to do something great here. Hey, everyone. I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Liz Elting, to our show today. Liz is a self-made businesswoman, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. She co-founded and was a co-CEO of TransPerfect, the world's largest provider of language and business solutions, which is also valued at over a billion dollars. Originally, early in her career, Liz intended to work in finance and got her dream job working as a trader on Wall Street. To her surprise, it turned out to be the complete opposite of what she expected. It was very much a boys club atmosphere with expectations that she perform administrative and secretarial work alongside her normal duties as a trader. Shocked and miserable in her position, Liz decided to quit her job after only a few months in. Although the decision at the time was very risky, Liz felt that if she was going to be given the right space to use her talent and potential, she would have to create it for herself. And that's when Chance Perfect was born. After 25 years as co-CEO, Liz helped build TransPerfect into an organization with more than 700 million in revenue, 5,000 employees, and 11,000 clients, all without any outside funding. In 2018, Liz left the company and founded the Elizabeth Elting Foundation, which advances economic, social, and political equality for women and marginalized people. Liz has appeared on Forbes' richest self-made women list for five years in a row and has been recognized for her efforts and achievements by the National Organization of Women, Forbes, American Express, Entrepreneur, and more. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks so much, Yasmin. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited that you're with us today. I recall coming across your interview a few months ago and was just so inspired by really how you built and scaled such a massive company. And I know there's going to be so many learnings when it comes to business partnerships and really building a company without raising any outside funding. So there's so much that I want to talk to you about, and I can't wait to jump into it. So I'd love to start from the beginning in the early days, especially for you. You grew up living in so many different countries and cultures, and clearly that's really impacted what you're up to today. So can you take us back to that time and share more about what your life was like growing up? Sure, absolutely. So I was born in Westchester, New York, and I ended up living there about an hour north of New York City for the first eight years of my life. And then when I was eight, my family moved to Portugal and we lived in Portugal when I was eight and nine. And that was a wonderful, exciting experience. And then when I was 10, we came back to North America and moved to Toronto. And I ended up living in Toronto until I was 17 and I went off to college. And then during college, I ended up doing my junior year in Spain and I lived there for a year. And then after college, I worked in Venezuela. By the time I was 21, a few months after graduating from college, I had actually lived in five countries. So it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience all around. I loved other cultures and 
I loved the whole experience. Wow, what an incredible experience. It's one thing to be given the opportunity to travel to all these countries younger, but the fact that you were living there and really embedding yourself in the culture is awesome and just so fascinating to hear. So outside of your love for traveling cultures and languages, I know you had a big interest in business when you were a kid as well. Can you talk to us more about your work ethic and where you really think that business mindset came from? Well, as far as where I got it from, I really had no choice but to work. (laughs) I started working when I was very young. From the time I was 10, I think my first job was walking a child to school. I remember I got paid $5 for the week, a dollar each day. I was in fifth grade. He was in second grade. So I remember that. And, And then it just went on job after job from the time I was 10. It was babysitting, delivering newspapers, telemarketing, working in a cleaners. So um, you know, it started very young. And I, I think a lot of why I did always work was when I turned 16, my parents said to me, no, okay, you're, a, you're legally old enough to work now. We will continue to pay for, obviously, your room, your, I mean, your housing, your food, and your education, of course, but your clothes, your entertainment, that's on you. So it made me realize I, I've got to make sure I I make money to pay for my clothes and, and, and things that I enjoy doing. So uh, I think that's, that's really where it came from. Oh, and another thing is I remember my parents both said they never want me to be financially dependent on anyone, you know, meaning really above all a man, you know, a, a husband. So started young and I've always loved working. And I, and I love being independent above all. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about because both my mom and my dad also would mention the same thing to me, even from a young age to when I was older in terms of don't be financially independent on a man, have your own life, have your own career. So it's interesting to see the similarities with your story as well. So I'd love to talk more about your college experience. It's interesting because you often talked about how you're trying to base your major on what was quote unquote practical versus what you're passionate and interested in. Can you take us back to that moment and really walk through how you thought about your college experience? Well, when I went to college, I really did not know what I was going to study. Although I did think, okay, I want to do something practical that makes, you know, a a good living. And so I ended up thinking, or I started out thinking, I should say, that I'll be a lawyer. I thought that made a lot of sense. I ended up taking a freshman seminar, a first year seminar called The Legal History of Race Relations. I thought that sounded very interesting. And it was interesting. I mean, the subject of race relations is is definitely something that's of interest to me. But I think I realized during that time, reading cases, writing, what's involved in it was not for me. It was not for me. So I determined that quickly. And then I realized as I was going through college, what I really loved was languages. I had studied four languages growing up. You know, as I mentioned, I lived in five countries and I had studied Portuguese, French, Latin, and Spanish, loved them. And I was still in college studying Spanish and French, still loved them. And I thought, well, the thing I enjoy doing most is being a language major. But what on earth am I going to do with a modern languages and literature major? I remember I called up my father and I said, you know, Dad, I love this, but it's completely impractical. What, what do I do? What should I do? And he said, you got to follow your heart, study what you love, and it will all work out. So I did. And, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I was, I was very happy to major in 
modern languages and literatures. Well, your dad definitely sounds amazing. To really have that kind of support is such a gift. And to his credit, he was right. Everything really did work out. So after college, you accepted a full-time offer at a translation company, which based on your interests and what you studied, I'm sure that was such an exciting opportunity. Can you talk to us more about that job? Because I think it was really pivotal in terms of how it impacted your career and ultimately the business that you started. Absolutely. And it was very exciting to find that opportunity because I remember people would say, when I told them what I majored in, they said, oh, so then you will be a teacher or a professor. And obviously those are wonderful careers, but I thought to myself, but I love business. I had had so many different jobs. I mean, I mentioned the ones I had when I was very young, but I had them all through high school and all through college, different jobs, trying out all kinds of things, including in offices. And I loved the idea of business. So I was fortunate enough to find an opportunity which combined my love for languages and business. It was working for what was at the time the world's largest translation company. It was about 90 people. And I ended up working there first on the production side where we would take the projects from start to finish and I would use my language skills. And then over on the sales side where I would interact with the clients. And I absolutely loved the industry, basically helping clients do international business. But I thought it could be done better. Because I had been on the production side, I knew how to get the work done and how long it would take and that type of thing. Like, for example, a client would give us 10 pages and they might say, I need this as soon as possible. And I would have to tell them that will take a week because that's what I was told I needed to do. He said, but, you know, I really need it in three days. I said, I'm sorry, we can't do that. But I knew I knew we could, but I didn't have the power to make that happen. Or we wouldn't be able to give them any kind of deliverable. Like we were able to give them something in Microsoft Word or WordPerfect. Now, this was many years ago. But still, they might have wanted it in PowerPoint or they may have wanted it in, in a different type of deliverable. So I thought we need to be more service oriented. And then finally, if we made mistakes in the work and they would say, I don't want to pay for this. You, you made mistakes. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, we need to charge you. And I thought, well, if it's our mistake, that's not right. So I thought it could be done better. I just kept that idea in the back of my head and then ended up going back to school and got my MBA from NYU then ended up starting my company. So going back a little bit, I'm actually curious about how you thought about business school. You know, the first job you had seemed like it completely aligned with your interests and passion. So what was the motivation for you to leave your job and go to NYU for your MBA? When I decided to go to business school, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. I just thought, okay, I've worked at this company for three years and I enjoyed it. I learned a tremendous amount. I loved the industry, but it was a relatively flat organization and I didn't know where I could go with it. I didn't know how far I could take it as my career. And I thought if I could complement my background with business skills and business courses, that could be very helpful in getting my next job, whatever it may be, you know, whether it was international banking or whatever it was. So that was the thought. I thought I'd get, I'd go to business school, I'd get an MBA and that would give me more opportunities that would open things up for me. So that was why I chose to do that. 
Yeah, no. And that definitely makes sense. And I know went to business school and when you graduated, you actually graduated during a recession and you took a pause and shifted away from your passions and actually became a trader at a French investment bank. So your life took a big turn at that moment. Can you talk to us about that job and really what it was like to go into finance, which was a shift from what you were doing in the past? Sure, absolutely. And I felt like I had to try out finance because I had just gotten my MBA, as I said, from NYU Business School. And this was in 1992 when 70% of the people who went there majored in finance and tended to go into investment banking. And that was the thing to do. And I thought, wow, you know, I know it's very lucrative. And, you know, maybe there's something very interesting and exciting about it. I I've got to try this out. I have my MBA in finance and international business, so it makes sense. I did end up getting a job at the proprietary trading division of a French bank, which we, you know is the division that traded the bank's money, and it was doing equity arbitrage. And I thought, wow, well, that sounds exciting. I ended up going in there, trying it out, and it was a whole different world from the business experience I was used to, you know, in the language industry. It was all men and me. I mean, all of the professionals were men and and that was different for me and the environment. It was a lot of yelling, swearing, very different from what I was used to. And then whenever the phone rang, the guys would yell, Liz, phone. And that wasn't what I expected. I took the job to be a trader. And so certainly wasn't expecting that, didn't like that. And the same with when office supplies needed to be ordered or, you know, notes needed to be taken. So I didn't enjoy that part of it. But also I was realizing this is not for me. I don't love the number crunching, the financial part of it. I thought I don't see having my my boss's job or my boss's boss's job. It's just not for me. My heart is not in it. Whereas I really did love the translation industry. After only four weeks, this is not the place for me. I ended up saying to my boss, sorry, I made a mistake. I apologize. How much time do you need? And he said, two more weeks would be fine. So I worked there two more weeks. And after six weeks, I left that that first job. Wow, that's a pretty big deal to have left a job so quickly. I don't think if I were to be in your position, would have the confidence that early in my life to have made such a move, especially without a job lined up afterwards. So how did you have the confidence to make such a massive leap at that point in your life? It was a little scary, honestly, because I felt like I had just spent two years and money getting my MBA and now I wasn't necessarily going to use it. And uh, so I felt a lot of guilt, quite honestly. I, I felt like, you know, how can I do this? But I also felt like I can't be miserable. You know, it was interesting. At the other job, I would go to work in the morning at 7, 7.30 in the morning, leave at midnight for the time I was there. And, and the hours were not the problem. It was just I felt like I don't enjoy this. It's a lot of paper pushing, number crunching. And if I'm going to do something like this, I want it to be something I love, something I enjoy. So as I said, a lot of guilt, but I thought life is short and I'd rather throw myself into something that I I can get excited about and really where I can make the culture. You know, I didn't like the culture at the French bank and I thought I can create my own culture as well. So, um, made a lot of sense to me, even though, you know, as I said, I felt a little guilty. (laughs) 
I know at this point in your life, you were still living in your NYU dorm room from grad school, and you always had the idea of building a better translation company, like you mentioned in your first job that you had. So it seems like the timing was right for you to start the business. But a question I have is being in finance, in investment banking, and also going to get your MBA, was it tough for you to take that risk and start a company when all your friends around you were, I'm sure, doing quite well for themselves and had these corporate jobs? And you were here trying to figure out a new business without any salary. Oh, absolutely. And and people would say things to me like, well, translation company, well, you'll have a lot more fun doing that, but you probably won't make, you know, much money. <laughs> but another thing that was a little unusual about it is in order to get it off the ground, we needed to work crazy hours, like 100 hours a week, 120 hours a week. I mean, basically from the time we woke up at six or seven in the morning till the time we went to sleep at, you know, whatever it was, one in the morning. It was like that every day, seven days a week. And I remember my friends from business school would be getting together to go out for happy hour after work, drinks after work. And, you know, it was hard because I thought, wow, that they're at their great job at Goldman Sachs or, or wherever, you know, at American Ex- express, you know, I felt like we were missing something, but I also felt like we're, we're going to do something great here. We're going to make something happen. So um, it was an interesting time for sure. And, and same with going to the Hamptons for the weekend. I remember they were getting shares in the Hamptons and we were in the city working seven days a week. So it was, it was an unusual situation, but obviously very interesting and exciting. But uh, yeah, crazy time. In another interview you did, you talked about how important goal setting was when you were starting out. And I want to take a moment and talk about that because I think going from a corporate environment or working under someone to then working for yourself and not having a quote unquote schedule, I think it's so, so critical to still be able to create that structure in your life. So can you talk to us more about why you think goal setting is important, especially when you become your own boss? Well, I'm a big believer in goals, always have been, and writing out your goals, writing them down, and then sharing them with people. And I think that's very important. So I think that needs to be done as far as what you want to accomplish you know, with your business. I mean, our goal, we had a number of goals. One was to become the world, to create the world's largest and premier language solutions company. Actually, back then we called it translation company, but now language solutions company. But another was the amount of revenue each year, you know, that we would make. And, and this was each year, and which offices we would open and, you know, write down the number of offices and then in which cities, the profit level. So I think goals are very important. And, and the list goes on and on. But, you know, I mentioned revenue. I mentioned profit. I mentioned where the offices are. So I think writing out goals, having goals and writing them out is incredibly important. And then how you're going to get to them. So that's a big part of how I live, you know, both as far as business and personally. And I, I think that can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. And then when you were writing out those very detailed goals of yours, did you have timelines around it as well? Absolutely. So at, I mean, at the end of each year, I would come up with goals for the following year, but many of them were daily goals and weekly goals and monthly goals. So yes, absolutely. For example, I remember when we said, okay, we're going to start opening offices. I remember we were on an airplane and said, 
we said, okay, we've got to act like we have a boss because we don't. It was my partner and me. And so you can do as little or as much as you want, as long as you don't upset your partner. And so we said, okay, let's act like we have a boss. And let's say each quarter, we're going to an open an office and say exactly where that office is. So every three months. And so very specific timelines, you know, but I remember like four offices in a year, one each quarter and specifying where those offices would be. And we did that every year for many, many, many years with the the offices we'd open. I think that's so key, especially starting out when you are your own boss. I think keep maintaining that structure and creating those goals and being very clear about and putting timelines is so important to get anything off the ground. And I think if you don't do that, you can easily get lost in the details and not really be as successful as you could be in the early days. So I love just kind of hearing your perspective on that. And, you know, I know one thing you very much focused on early on is bringing in sales. And you really grew the business to a massive company, over $600 million in revenue. So really looking back at your journey, and this is a a loaded question, but what do you think were some of the key points that helped you kind of manage the funds of the business? Because you guys did not bring in $1 of investment coming in. It was completely self-funded. So are there any key takeaways in terms of starting, building, and scaling a business that's self-funded? In the early days, we focused only on sales. And as far as goals, it was all about the sales goals. First and foremost, how much are we going to sell you know, this week and this month and this year? And focused intensely on that. And so in order to do that, the goals were We'll make 300 cold calls today or phone calls, you know, they were, but cold calls and we will send out 300 letters today. So each of us had to make 300 calls and send out 300 letters every day for a period of time. And then we said, okay, we're going to hire people and each of them is going to have to send out 300 letters a day and make 300 phone calls a day. So that was a big part of how we did it. And that's the the big sales focus. In addition, what we would do is once we did hire a salesperson, we would put them in an office. For example, when we were opening offices and we would say, okay, it's just you. We're not going to have anybody that we hire for you yet, but when you're able to sell $50,000 a month for three consecutive months, then we will hire a person to work with you, an account manager to help you sell. And then when the two of you together sell $120,000 a month for three consecutive months, you can hire another person and so on. And so it was really like their own business for each person, but they had goals. And if they didn't accomplish the goals, they couldn't add to their entity, their company, their office. Another thing we did is we paid the salespeople very much based on success. So a low downside if they didn't sell, but a high upside if they did. So it was a draw against commission, if you're familiar with that concept. And it makes it so if they're a good salesperson, they can make more money than they would elsewhere. And But if they're not, they're not going to be happy and ultimately they will probably choose to leave. So those are some of the things we did to build the revenues and the sales team. 
So it's definitely interesting to hear about the importance of sales in your business. And I think a key takeaway is structuring the business in a way where the costs are variable, right? So you were saying not only would you give the salespeople more ownership of their team, but also you paid them based on how they were doing themselves, right? So you weren't locked into a six-figure salary paying an executive who wouldn't necessarily be bringing in business. So I think you being very methodical about how you were thinking about growing the team and really giving your employees a sense of ownership, right? Because the upside is infinite if you structure it in that way too. So they're also incentivized. And one thing you also thought quite a bit about in the early days, and even until you were there towards the end, is the importance of profitability. So can you also talk to us a bit more about how you thought about that for the business? We certainly had profitability goals, without question. I remember at the end, in the later years, it was 20% EBITDA. That was the goal. We needed 20% EBITDA. But in the early days, we really had to make money because if we didn't, we couldn't add people. We couldn't open offices. We couldn't you know, start related lines of business. We couldn't make acquisitions. So we had to be profitable. And I think what happens is when people have investors, or even if they get a loan, they might not have this the same kind of pressure to make sure they're, they're profitable every single day because they're dealing with other people's money. And we weren't. It wasn't an option. If we didn't make money, we couldn't add people and we couldn't do all the things we needed to do to grow. That's how it works. And that's one of the advantages of not getting outside funding. I know that's what most entrepreneurs want to do. They want to figure out, okay, how can I get someone to fund me, right? How can I get investors? The big challenge is getting investors. But for us, it was better not to have investors because it made us profitable sooner and and the whole way along, every quarter until the end, or, or not in the end, until I sold two years ago. And, and one other thing, I think if you can, if you can avoid getting outside investors, it's so much better because then you can spend your time rather than on a business plan to get investors on ways to get revenue, ways to get customers, ways to get clients. And that's what you ultimately want. That's what's going to make your company successful. So I think that's very important as well. Talking about those early days of the business, do you remember any stories where you hit a big roadblock or was really challenging for you and your partner? Anything that you recall that you can share with us? I mean, there were definitely times that things went wrong, like such as we had thought we were going to get $15 million worth of business from a huge retail company. This was in the early days. This was in our first few years. So obviously that would have changed our trajectory tremendously back then. So what we ended up doing is we said, okay, we're going to open an office in, in Florida to handle that business because they were based in Florida. and. Anyway, we ended up getting the office, hiring the people, and then they backed out. And we had just spent a lot of money to service them, and they backed out, and it was very frustrating. And we certainly learned from that. You need the deposit. You need the commitment. You need a signed contract. You need all of those things. And so that was a good learning experience back in our early days because we certainly made a lot of mistakes like that. But that was a frustrating moment. There were so many many, you know, mistakes made. Um, we learned a lot about people and retaining people in the early days when the hours were crazy. 
we would have people working crazy hours like we were. And we tried to do things. I mean, I remember after a big project, we took the whole company when it was 20 people to the Bahamas, and that was a nice perk. But in spite of that, we made mistakes. Like we, we would have people pulling all-nighters night after night, and we thought, okay, well, we'll just pay them more money. We'll give them a, another bonus because we thought we could at that moment based on the revenue they were handling, but they would leave. They would leave because they still needed their life. They needed the work-life balance. So that was another frustrating time when we had trouble retaining good people because we hadn't figured out how to handle the work and keep people motivated in the process, even you know as we paid them more. And if you look at your company today, TransPerfect is known for such a great culture and you guys do so much for your employees. So it's interesting and always fascinating for me to see how you maneuvered those challenges in the early days, because clearly you didn't know what you were doing back then and you've learned so much, which is why TransPerfect is the way it is right now. So another topic I want to talk about is all around partnerships. So I know you and your co-founder were 50-50 partners. Looking back at your experience running the company with him. Are there any key tips or advice that you can share with our listeners when it comes to thinking through partnerships? Part, yeah, partnerships are the best things about starting a company and also one of the most challenging and, and uh, dramatic and interesting. But in our case, it was an interesting story because we were boyfriend and girlfriend when we started. And then we actually started the company out of an NYU business school dorm room that we were living in. And we, we got engaged and then we broke up and then we, we both wanted to keep the company. It was our baby, but we were broken up. So there was that drama, but, but more importantly, or along with that is we didn't sign a shareholders agreement when we started the company. We just, we started it with no money and we couldn't afford a lawyer. We couldn't afford an accountant. So we just did it the way we knew. and. Then we realized after a few years, we really need a shareholders agreement. And the reason you need a shareholders agreement is even though it may be clear that one of you owns 50% and the other owns 50%, which we did properly, that we did. What wasn't clear were roles, decision-making, dispute resolution, a buy-sell provision, what happens if one of us dies, becomes disabled, all of that. I mean, basically all of those things. And those things became bigger and bigger issues over the years and certainly after a few years. And I will say I, I wanted to get the agreement signed after a few years, but at that point it was hard to make that happen. So I think it's incredibly important for people when they start with a partner, whether it's a, a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a child, whatever it is, or a best friend, or a boyfriend, you know, whatever it is, you absolutely need it. You need to get it done before there's something to fight about. <laughs> and that's what we didn't do. And I ended up being in litigation over it for five years and spending about $50 million and got through it and learned a lot during that process, learned a lot about litigation. <laughs> but the point is, that's not what you want. So you really need that shareholders agreement at the outset when you have a partner. It could not be more important no matter who your partner is. And how do you think about 50-50 partnerships? As someone who is in that position as well, is it something that you recommend for future founders? How do you think about equal partnerships? 
given my own personal experience, it's better if you kind of avoid that situation because it's not exactly, I'm mean, clearly it's not clear who's in charge, right? And we also didn't have the right shareholders agreement along with it. So it made it all the more challenging. But even with a good shareholders agreement, if it's 50-50, it can be difficult to to get things done. You know, for one per, if you don't agree on things, you it's difficult. I mean, ultimately one person should be able to make the calls. And so if you can avoid being 50 and be the person in charge, be the 51% owner, I think that would be the preference. That's certainly what I would do next time. I mean, 51% or 100% for that matter. But then, you know, maybe you want a partner, maybe you need a partner, but 51% or more would be preferable. And then you can call the shots. I think 50-50 can be challenging, even with a good shareholders agreement. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because I definitely want to make sure we talk about this as well. When you were building Chance Perfect, you also became a mother to your two young sons. So I'm curious, from your perspective as a woman who's built a company from scratch and really have scaled it to hundreds of millions of dollars, what advice do you have for founders who are trying to build their business and raise their family at the same time? Right. And I think that would be an incredibly difficult thing to do. I mean, from personal experience, from my own personal experience, I was fortunate, I, I think, that I was able to start my company when I was 26, and I did not have my first child until I was 34. So I had eight years when I was younger and first single, and then eventually got married. But the first so quite a few years of owning a company. I was young and single and no kids. And I think that's a lot easier, quite frankly. I think it would be very challenging to start a company with young kids and, and really scale it because your kids need your time and your company needs your time. That said, I guess what I did do as my kids were born and then, you know, were young, I really compartmentalized and, and I do compartmentalize. I like to, when it comes to work, when I, everyone was going to the office every day, you know, I would go in at whatever time, 8 a.m. and work intensely until 6 p.m., for example, whatever the time is, but very intensely, and then do my best to be done <laughs> at that time, and then go home and make it all about the kids. You know, I think, you know, a lot of times what happens in companies and certainly when people don't have kids is they, they spread it out. They, they come in when they come in, they talk to their friends, the day goes on and on and on, and then they go out for drinks. And I, I think you can't, you can't do that when you have kids. So I think compartmentalizing. And then, of course, once you get home at 6.30 or 7 or whenever you can make it, make it all about family time, having dinner with your, your kids, with your family if you can, being off email if you can, you know ideally for the night, but that's not realistic in this time we live in. But until 10 p.m., for example, when your kids go to bed or whenever they go to bed and then back on email, but really separating it out. So you have family time and work time to the extent you can. And I, I also found as my company grew and we had more managers and women who were, ha who were managers who were having kids, they saw that if their boss never took a break, they never wanted their boss's job. So it's important as a leader to do those things, to make it so 
you're working intensely during the day, but then, you know, at night you're off and your employees can be off and they have their personal time because if the owner of the company doesn't do, do, do that, if the managers don't do that, then the employees who come behind us don't want to be at the company long-term because they realize life at the company is 24-7 and I don't want that. So it's, it's great to, to do that both for yourself and for your company and your employees. And when you had your two kids, I know the company was not in its infancy stage, but it was still pretty early on in the business. Do you think it impacted you or made you a better CEO or leader? Yes, I do. I think, and I think it changes everybody. I think being a parent can be very helpful for being a, a boss, <laughs> a manager, a leader. I think we know every employee is different and needs to be managed differently and, and the same way every child is. And uh, you have to give you know the employees and the children what they need and can make you more understanding, more nurturing, <laughs> more, you know, the way you need to be both as a good leader and a good parent. So I do. I do. Absolutely. Thinking about where you are in your life right now, you left the company after being there for over 25 years. You really brought this business to life. And now you're running your own foundation to really make an impact. My question for you is, what did it feel like to leave the business two years ago? I know we've had many founders on our podcast who thought it was very difficult. You know, our first episode with the founder of Equinox, she, Lavinia Erico, she felt depressed when they sold the business. We always think it's a glamorous thing to cash out, make money, build something amazing. But it's tough when you don't really feel like you're involved anymore because that's all you really knew. So how is your experience leaving Chance Perfect about two years ago? It definitely is hard. After 26 years of being a CEO or a co-CEO, it's hard but one of the things I, I felt, because it was so intense for so long, and it wasn't the type of job where I thought, or position where I felt like, okay, I can go take a week off and not, not speak to anyone on the phone and not check my emails. Oh my God. It was like, uh, you know, it was 5,000 emails. It was a ridiculous number of emails a day. I mean, 5,000 emails a day at a, a point. I mean, a lot of them I just had to get had to get through to find the ones that I really needed to look at. But it was overwhelming at the end. So I, I was excited about that next phase where I had more freedom. But another thing that I ended up getting from it was when my kids were born, it was when the company was still relatively young. And I didn't take maternity leave with either of them, not even like for a day. I mean, basically I brought them back from the hospital and then I was working at least, you know, from home initially until I got back to work quickly, but no maternity leave. And the reason I say that is I remember when I first sold my company, I said, yeah, I'm taking my maternity leave now. I'm with my, uh, my kids, one of whom when I sold was in 12th grade and one was in 10th grade. But you know what I mean? So I guess the point is, things that you never got to do. I mean, I didn't, you know, stop working and stop doing anything completely, but I felt like I can finally see a little more of my kids. That's beautiful to hear. I'd also love to get your thoughts around what you think are the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make. I know you mentor quite a bit of folks and you're pretty involved with NYU's business school. So I'd love to get your perspective around that. Oh yeah, that is a good question. And I will say I've seen different mistakes. Like for example, I've seen a lot of people who have a great product and maybe even a great infrastructure to make that product, to create that product or service. But the thing they're missing 
is the sales, the sales team, the sales element. And without sales, you, you have no company. <laughs> Revenue is the most important thing to pay the bills and to reinvest in the company. So I feel like you can have a great idea, a great product, a great service. You can fine tune it. But if you can't have, number one, a market who wants it, people who want to buy it, and then number two, a great sales team to sell it, then you're never going to be able to scale your company. So again, you know, making sure you have a product that people want. And then number two, having a great sales team to sell it are so important. So that's one thing I see. Another is sometimes with small business owners, I mean, it, I think it depends on the situation, but sometimes they're not always focused on the finances as much as they should be. I mean, obviously it depends on the person because some people might be very focused on that. But I think that's really important. Another thing is spending so much time trying to get investments from other people. You know, as I was saying earlier, you can spend a lot of time writing a business plan and meeting with people and trying to be connected to people to invest in your company. But your time is better spent making sure, as I said earlier, people want to buy it and you then you fund people to sell it. So I guess those are some of the things that come to mind. Well, Liz, I want to be mindful of our time together, but it was so much fun to have you on and learn more about your story and your background. And I'm so excited about this next phase in your life. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Yasmin. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.